This is AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, general article reviews, and innovation in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. For a limited time, AMDA's new pocket guide, Parkinson's Disease and Psychosis in the Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Setting, is free when you download the AMDA app. The pocket guide highlights key information needed to recognize, assess, treat, and monitor people with Parkinson's disease in the PALTC setting. It also includes a special focus on Parkinson's disease psychosis. Download the AMDA app to access the new pocket guide today. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for AMDA on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to AMDA on the Go. In response to a recent New York Times article, this podcast will resume the discussion around antipsychotic medications and their use in the long-term care setting. Almost 15 years ago, in a Journal of Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment article entitled 50 Years of Chlorpromazine, a Historical Perspective, author Thomas Bond reminded us that the field of psychopharmacology was a relatively new player in the history of medicine, initiated around the 1950s, and up until that time, there was no effective drug therapy for mental illness that is, until chlorpromazine was synthesized in France in 1951. Interestingly, it was introduced clinically as a new anesthetic agent, and French army surgeon Henri Laborie found that chlorpromazine generated disinterest in patients. And in 1952, he published his findings in an article entitled A New Vegetative Stabilizer. Very interesting title, given what we are talking about 70 years later. As a Boston University medical student in the late 1980s, I remember hearing the story of how Thorazine, the trade name for chlorpromazine, liberated psychiatric residents from the historic Solomon Carter Fuller building in the south end of Boston in the 1970s. That building, its history, and I were intimately connected for four years as I completed my doctorate on its 10th floor and was reminded every day of the residents who remained on the floors below. Flash forward to 2012, Boston Globe reporter Kay Lazar writes a multi-part series of articles entitled Use of Antipsychotic Drugs Raises Alarms and focuses on how many nursing homes make heavy use of antipsychotic drugs to pacify residents. From this article and others around the country, we are all aware of the federal and state mandates that followed and the magnifying glass that maintained its view on the issue. Then, recently, on September 11, 2021, our national iconic day for loss and sadness seemed only intensified among those of us in post-acute long-term care with the release of a New York Times article entitled, Phony Diagnoses Hide High Rates of Drugging at Nursing Homes. To me, the impact of the story of poor care and communication around antipsychotic medications felt more like a pouring of salt onto an open wound that many of us in the post-acute industry have tried so hard to heal. 
What is it about these medications that continue to create such a public outcry through palpable reports and high-touch media formats? Why are we still here and where are we headed with antipsychotic medications in the skilled setting? Well, I can think of no one better to continue this discussion and perhaps guide us to some healing than geriatric psychiatrist, educator, and leader, Dr. Leah Watson. And we are fortunate to have Dr. Watson here with us now. Dr. Watson is a geriatric psychiatrist, teacher, and cheerleader for safe prescribing in late life. She's a clinical associate professor of psychiatry and geriatrics with the University of Colorado. She developed her own consulting and training firm to extend the reach of geriatric psychiatry. She co-leads the Society Behavioral Health Steering Committee as well. Dr. Watson, welcome back to AMDA On The Go. Thank you, Dr. Saltzman. It is so good to be here, sadly under these circumstances, but uh, always happy to talk with you about what's going on. Oh, we so appreciate it. So, Dr. Watson, you and I have talked about antipsychotic use before. Personally, I was stunned, angry, deeply saddened after I read this September 11th New York Times article, and I contemplated the broad effects on all of us patients, providers, staff, and administrators in the nursing home industry. But you know, right off the bat, I am interested in what your immediate reaction and emotion was, not just as a geriatric psychiatrist formally trained in the use of antipsychotic medications, but as someone who has dedicated her life to the best care of medically and behaviorally complex older adults in the post-acute and long-term care setting. That's a great question. Sadly, I was unsurprised, I'm afraid, because we had been tipped off about these data uh, for a while. And in fact, the society um, through the Behavioral Health Council had actually created uh, an update of what schizophrenia really looks like to help people understand the importance of uh, diagnosing it correctly. So I was not surprised, but very, very sad. And I thought the article was actually quite well written and it, it included data that I were not aware of, um, which were, I think, very illuminating and, and made a great point. The, the key one, of course, being the relationship to staffing, which I think we'll have the chance to talk about as we go forward. Mm. But just as a reminder, I mean, why it is so incredibly ludicrous that people are using this diagnosis is that, you know, schizophrenia happens in less than 1% of the population. And it typically emerges in the late teens and early 20s. And I'm so glad you actually started us off with a little history lesson, because I think one of the lessons here as someone who is in the, you know, in the trenches every day is that we can't lose sight of the fact that these medications actually are miracle drugs for people living with chronic and severe psychotic illnesses. And I think one of the unintended consequences that I really hadn't planned on discussing is that people with schizophrenia and chronic schizoaffective disorder are sometimes now being taken off of medications that are in fact life-saving for them right. in an unattended way because of the, uh, basically the sins uh, around the dementia use. So I, I'm glad I had the opportunity to point that out in, in relation to your introduction. Mm. It's really important that we keep that in mind as we continue to talk about ways forward. But with regard to the dementia use and the skirting of this, I, I think the main issue is that we simply have never been successful in making what really amounts to a naughty list of medications. 
And I think what we've done is we've created certain diagnoses where it's apparently okay to use them without giving really any more thought to it than that. And then we've created medications um, that are vilified. And another thing that I know that we'll probably get to before the end is uh, the other unintended consequence of vilifying antipsychotics has been what I think of as the substitution effect of all of the other um, uh, central nervous system acting agents that can actually cause just as much harm. Mm -hmm. And so I'll stop and regroup because I don't want to get us too off course, but there, there are many issues here and unintended consequences. Um, but I, for what it's worth, I absolutely believe these data. They are extremely disheartening and they really reflect a systematic brokenness, both in how we're regulated and, and frankly, how we, what, what the setting of nursing homes is actually mm. set up to be. Mm. Well, you know, then, then along those lines, I, I'd like to take a, a, a deeper a deeper historical dive, really focusing on the long-term care setting, you know, uh, more so than, than in my, my introduction, you know, and as you, as you've intimated, you know, pharmacologically speaking, we have come a long way, you know, from, from Thorazine with the, these, how, with antipsychotic medications, uh, generationally becoming uh, newer and updated and, and profiles changing somewhat. But, you know, could you lead us maybe through um, the evolution of antipsychotic medication and their immigration into the long-term care setting? You know, how did we get from mental health liberation to medication abuse? You know, given the options available, you know, I was surprised by this article that, that we are still thinking about Haldol um, as it was identified, you know, um, you know, I was reviewing a, a website from a law firm that now specializes in nursing home abuse. It, it just it, it raises the hairs that focuses on fil facilities that, quote, create suffering from the misuse of antipsychotic medications. How did we get here? Well, it's it's a really interesting story, and it actually tells us exactly why we're having the problem we're having today. And it largely has to do with illegal marketing from the pharmaceutical industry. Hmm. So just as a historical perspective, atypical antipsychotics were introduced in the 1990s, beginning with Risperdal and then Seroquel and then Zyprexa. And Im almost immediately, the rates of antipsychotic use started to rise in nursing homes. And this was just completely linearly related to the illegal marketing for off-label use of these medications. Wow. In fact, culminating in fines for each of these manufacturers, the highest paid by the mega company Johnson and Johnson, the makers of Risperdal at $2.2 billion. Mm -hmm. So for perspective, all of the companies ended up paying fines and the behavioral economics of this, of course, is that when you get drug detailers in to say you actually have some sort of salve that's going to help the, the agitated and distressed person and you create that narrative, um, and we could talk about the literature around what drug detailing does, is they don't really care that, that it's illegal or they're going to get fined for it. It's actually in the business model because it gets people to start prescribing these drugs that they are, in fact, still prescribing today. Hmm. So by 2011, the use of antipsychotics in nursing homes had reached 
And that is when the famed OIG report of 2011 came out. Um, I think it was titled, I have it written here, Medicare Atypical Antipsychotic Drug Claims for Elderly Nursing Home Residents, hmm. which was a very, a very disturbing report, which then led to the um, National Partnership to Improve Dementia Care in Nursing Homes. So the dementia partnership model, which has, you know, gone on since then to help reduce the use of them. And, you know, importantly to remember, the intent was to do it through public reporting, educational resources, and with a renewed regulatory enforcement, which is where we got the three, you know, approved diagnoses for the use of antipsychotics and where antipsychotics became this crucible for vilifying their use. Right. And it's the other thing that's really important to underscore is that when pharma was pushing these drugs to nursing homes, there was no FDA approval for the treatment of symptoms of dementia, which is why, in fact, they got fined. Um, no studies have, uh, not only have studies failed to demonstrate um, that antipsychotics old or new work in dementia, but you know, the FDA has issued a black box warning say that they increase the risk of stroke and death, you know, both in the old and new antipsychotics. So mm -hmm. clearly we have medications that are dangerous, don't work, um, and they're still being used. So I think that most of us that are physicians and providers believe that we are not influenced by drug detailing. The evidence absolutely shows otherwise. Um, and, and still, in fact, people are prescribing them along with things like Depakote, which we can talk about later, um, whose maker and the pharmaceutical company Omnicare were also fined for fraudulent marketing to try to get the uptake of use in nursing homes. So it's extremely pervasive, these disinformation campaigns. So that's the short and awful story, which I, I really do think underlies where, how we got here. You know, and, and as you just mentioned, uh, Depakote, I know that many of our listeners are are thinking, you know, geez, this is what we were told to turn to, um, to replace antipsychotic use or to trial. And I, 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 I'm raising my hand because I was one of those who was told, you know, we're now working on lo looking at Depakote or valproic acid and uh, in, in order to take somebody off um, one of the atypical antipsychotics. So, so that is very, very fresh in my mind. Well, it's very interesting. And, and that's exactly what Abbott and Omnicare hoped would happen. Um, after this report came out in 2011, they saw a big vacuum and jumped in and they knew that they were not going to get um, in trouble for it because it was not an antipsychotic medication. Right. Right. And this, despite, of course, the fact that we have data showing not only does it not help, it actually can shrink the brain further and cause worse problems. So, and, and the reason people think it helps is because it makes people sleepy and it basically is another chemical restraint and it's pervasively used right now. And I think this article actually highlighted, you know, Depakote sprinkles, which somehow sounds more benign um, and of course can be given without having to swallow a pill. And I can tell you every single day in my practice, I take somebody off of Depakote that just came out of the hospital. So this is a, an ever present and, and very current practice. Hmm. It is, has no evidence and clear risk of harm. Hmm. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. 
We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. We are fortunate to have Dr. Leah Watson with us to continue the discussion and reflection around the use and misuse of antipsychotic medication in long-term care residents. You know, Dr. Watson, I, I was reminded of some of the work that has been conducted to reduce the use of antipsychotics in long-term care setting, like the 2016 Journal of the American Medical Director Association, JAMDA, uh, work of Dr. Stephen Gordon and others, um, in, a, in an article entitled, The Impact of Video Conference Education Intervention on Physical Restraint and Antipsychotic Use in Nursing Homes, results from the ECHO Age pilot study. I mean, talk about, talk about non-pharmacologic study. Um, it's a virtual study in which they found nearly 20% reduction in prescribed antipsychotic, antipsychotic use in nursing facilities. You know, as you were talking about the Depakote issue, I, I personally recall directors of nursing uh, giving me, as medical director, lists of patients uh, or residents on antipsychotics and simply asking, who can come off? With the, the idea to get down to this mystery percentage or target of antipsychotics in the building when there were no targets to achieve. And, you know, from the from my own personal vantage point, you know, Massachusetts state law has created some very strict rules around discharging patients and antipsychotics from the acute to post-acute setting, not just rationale, but um, electrocardiograms, uh, you know, et cetera. So as you reflect on the past five years, what advances, if any, or changes have you seen on antipsychotic use in the nursing home setting? You know, despite advertisements analogous to what you, you have already said, you know, that come up on TV that are quite clear about restricting antipsychotic medications in older adults, um, especially with adverse behaviors associated with dementia. You know, have things improved? What are some common guardrails that have been put into place that may have been effective? Has education helped? Is the provider spotlighted in the New York Times article, you know, one of the, I'll say, 5% of providers who spoils the entire barrel or a ongoing reflection of a larger ongoing problem, for which I'm compelled to ask you, in addition, is it still a problem? Yeah, so it, it is still a problem. And the answer to all this is actually quite complicated because I think since the Dementia Partnership Initiative, we have actually had some absolutely amazing educational interventions that I truly think have been transformative in many nursing home systems where people have learned non-pharmacologic interventions where um, the QIOs have spent considerable time and effort creating great content to support 
frontline staff being trained. And, I, you know, we got to a relative low of about 15%, 16%, and never could get much lower than that. And part of the reason is because some people actually really need to be on antipsychotics. <laughs> the other part, the other reason is because the shell game had already begun, right? So I'm pretty convinced that the numbers, when they fell off at 15 to 16%, I think that there was already some misdiagnosing going on, to be honest. Mm. I think it, prob it probably never got quite that low. The elephant in the room in all of this has to do with staffing and models of care where mm. people are grouped together in large groups, multiple people in rooms with not enough staff and not enough activities, which, of course, then drives the need to want to help medicate uh, patients when they don't have enough staff to take care of them. And one of the graphs that really stuck with me from the Times piece was the star ratings um, related to staffing in the antipsychotic drug use. And it's clear that they're completely related. So the higher staffing people had, the lower use of their antipsychotics across the board. And this, of course, is not surprising. But when you think about all of the effort of which so many of our members and, and myself um, have been involved in over the last you know, decade, essentially, we go in to do educational events and there's not a face in the room that was even there last month sometimes. So hoping to have a sustained change in culture requires much lower attrition and really more innovative models of care where people have more time to take care of patients and, and patients have more space to live in. Um, and clearly we know things like the greenhouse model and neighborhood um, the neighborhood philosophy of care really reduces the request for um, all drugs, including antipsychotic drugs, to help with behaviors, um, and it decreases uh, attrition. So th those are the big things. And just to get to this, you know, is it one rotten apple thing? I, I think the heterogeneity of nursing home care across this country cannot be overstated. You know, we both happen to live in big metro areas where we actually have access to people with expert training in geriatrics and psychiatry and neurology and long-term care with systems of care that are a little more evolved and innovative, but at the edges of our states and rural places, there may not be a geriatrician or a psychiatrist within 100 miles. Mm. And they're just trying to get through the day and very well-intended directors of nursing, like the one I just talked to just last week in a rural community in Colorado, said, Dr. Watson, I've got this 90-year-old who's really having behaviors. You know, we decided last time because of her aggression, of her dis distressing psychosis, that, that we would try some risperidone, which I actually completely agreed with. She said, but I really need you to do me a favor. and I need you to say that she has schizophrenia instead oh, of de oh, dementia. Oh my. So, I mean, there it is right there. And, and there's no one to blame here, but, but the system itself. So I do think there's heterogeneity. I do think that the majority, certainly of the listeners here, we're going to be preaching to the choir. Mm. I think that the prescribers that are doing this have not been educated. And one of the things I would like to see going forward very much is that it is the prescribers that need to be accountable for the prescriptions that they write. And I believe this about opioid use and I, as well. And I think in, until we hold the prescribers accountable for what they're writing, I don't, I don't think things are going to change. Powerful. 
Very powerful. And as someone who has been also in the trenches with regard to the um, the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic and the effect on staffing that we're all very well aware of, doesn't seem like anything along the lines of what you are talking about with regard to staffing may be happening anytime soon. No. I think we're having a huge staffing crisis, and I think hopefully all of the rumors that we're reimagining long-term care are really going to come to fruition and, and adequate staffing and adequate, adequate payment and uh, benefits for our, our front-line workers is going to be a big part of it. You know, in the time we have remaining, uh, just a, a number of questions remain and probably will remain, and maybe taking a little bit more of a deeper dive into some of your previous comments um, you know, as we continue to reflect on this article, um, you know, how should we respond? How have we responded? You know, not just individually, but, you know, as a society of caregivers in this space, what should each of us today be reviewing or enacting or teaching in our facilities, classroom, board meetings around antipsychotic medications or frankly around all medications what what actionable steps should we be thinking about today kind of the the amda the amda mantra of what can we talk about today that we can do tomorrow you know especially for those of us as you mentioned who do not have the luxury of a psychiatry consultation um, in alternatives around antipsychotic use is it fair for the lay public or, or public officials to think that these medications will ever be eliminated from the from the SNF setting? Um, you know, where does policy kind of play in? You know, where do we where do we? I'll just say, continue to go from from here. Uh, these are hard questions with no clear, easy answers. But what I can tell you directly from the AMDA standpoint is that the Behavioral Health Council has developed a guideline around schizophrenia diagnosis and exactly what that entails. We've created a, a little executive summary about that and how uncommon very late onset schizophrenia actually is. We're going to be mailing that around again. Um, in, a, in addition, the Colorado Dementia Partnership, um, and Dr. Leslie Eber has actually been a big part of this, but over the years we have developed really clear guidelines about how to run a psych farm meeting Mm. And we can make, and we're going to make these available to members as well, because I, I think it's easy to get into the blame game um, when we talk about prescribing and uh, who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong. But I think if we think of think of a third party um, as the system itself and actually create a systematic way of doing these meetings, it can make a huge difference. And in doing so, it's it's really not all that complicated. It just means that you think about each medication that crosses into the central nervous system in a way where you make sure that the, the benefit exceeds the risk. And the reason we have these psych farm meetings on a quarterly basis is to do that exact thing. And so it's a huge opportunity for quality improvement. And, and other medications really need to be considered. And if I leave the listeners with anything, I, I just want to read off the things that everyone should be worried about, not just antipsychotics. Um, all the anti-epileptic drugs like Depakote, Tegretol, uh, Keppra, all of those things. So anti-epileptic drugs, all of the gabapentinoids, we know that they increase the risk for respiratory suppression and confusion and delirium. 
So gabapentin and Lyrica. Muscle relaxants um, absolutely are overused in this setting for the calming effect. Benzodiazepines, of course, opioids. These are the major lists. And, and I think the other thing for people just to remember as a simple mantra is that people with schizophrenia can get dementia. People with dementia can't get schizophrenia. Mm. Thank you. So if we can really stop to think just very logically about that, and I, I do think that for the most part, people are trying to do the right thing, and there, there are very few people that are nefariously misdiagnosing. I think in many cases, it's just like that director of nursing who's just trying to get through the day and not get in trouble. So we have to create the carrots and sticks that are going to make sense around this. And I, I really think the other elephant in the room, of course, going forward is that I think we're at a regulatory sort of reckoning. We cannot go on and, and we, you know, not to mention infection control, which is a whole nother discussion that I'm sure you've been having with, with other experts, but we need to think of a, of a way to be less punitive and more educational and to help all boats rise. And I, I really think it's going to start with, with staffing and models of care that allow for more person-centered um, supervision and care. Hallelujah. And I know that the, I know because I'm on the AMDA board that the AMDA board is actually talking about those things uh, even as, uh, even as we speak. So uh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely spot on, spot on. Uh, how fortunate are we to be able to speak with and learn from national thought leader, educator, geriatric psychiatrist, um, AMDA Society Behavioral Health Steering Council co-chair, Dr. Leah Watson. What a what a wonderful what a wonderful wonderful discussion, Dr. Watson. Thank you once again for spending more time with AMDA on the go. Oh, it's my pleasure, Wayne. Thanks so much for bringing important attention to this. Mm. References for this podcast can be found at paltc.org. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for this innovation podcast that we call AMDA on the Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post Acute Care.